Okay, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Have you noticed already the, the beautiful correlation between Proverbs and Romans and how we are going to have such a great time going from Old Testament to New Testament? And so um, I think already we have seen how, how fitting this is. So we start Romans today. And in the questions, I started, I right away, I said, okay, who, who wrote Romans? Well, you know, you think everybody knows, but they don't. And, and uh, maybe that's not important, and, but it is, I want you to know it is important because, um, because Paul is such an example of what Jesus can do in a life. And as I think, like I prayed today, there's so many of us who have been religious for many, many years. You know, we've been to church and Sunday school since, you know, who knows when. And so it just kind of, we felt it just kind of automatically happens. But Paul is such a clear example. And that's why I said, describe the writer of this book. Because I think the first couple lines of Romans, he wants people to know this about him. And always when, when Paul would give a testimony, he always told, he, he would always say, this is what I used to be. This is what I used to do. Paul knows what grace is. Paul knows what forgiveness is. Paul is a changed man. I mean, you think of, of how he used to be, you know, when he was Saul, that Jewish Pharisee, and he he was very eloquent. He was very intellectual. He was he was very good at studying and preaching, and he he wowed people. He had a lot of of gifts. He did, but but he was so stuck. And remember, we've talked about that that fourth group last week of of. Uh, Proverbs 1, is that, you know, you can get so sure of your one area of expertise that you don't broaden to see that Jesus has so much more to teach you. And he was so stuck in his religion. And, and it took a real eye-opening experience in the book of Acts. I mean, the fact that he, got, he just got dumped to the ground. I mean, it was a very um, eye-opening experience. And then, yeah, it was eye-opening, but then the Lord blinded him for three days. And there he sits in the dark. I would say he thinks there's a lot to think about. I think it's there he starts to realize that all of his physical attributes and talents really were in the wrong direction and they didn't get him anywhere. I would say he was pretty much humbled when he was blind for three days and he was thinking. Ananias comes and they, and they talk and I believe that we see that Paul is, becomes a saved man. He accepts Jesus as his savior. And, and I think that when you see Paul describe himself in many of his letters, he, he says, I preach, I preach Jesus. So he changed his whole, his whole sermon series. I mean, I think about how, how we used to eloquently preach the Old Testament, and I'm sure he was very headstrong and very, you know, diligent about that. And now he, he takes all of that and he says, I now preach Jesus. Jason uh, had to, uh, this week, he had to give the chapel. He had to preach in the chapel at Western Seminary. Now, you know, 
Can you imagine how hard that must be when everybody's sitting in there are your, are your other minister friends who are learning? And so I just can't even imagine what, you know, how nervous that probably was for him. And so I thought, what can I say to him? What can I just quick write to him a minute? And so I wrote, you know, because I said, they'll, they'll be critiquing you. Who knows if they're even going to um, so-called hear the central part of your message. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, they're all trying to correct and help you and all that kind of thing. I said, but I want to let you in on a little secret. I said, I've never told you and Chad this. But every time that you preach, I pray that you never preach a sermon without Jesus in it. That you don't ever preach a sermon without, without telling the story of Jesus. I don't know what you could possibly be preaching otherwise. Then maybe it's just a bunch of social things about that. But I, I want you preaching a sermon that always has Jesus in it. The gospel story. And, and so, and that's the truth. And that's the truth. And the reason why I dare say that is because when Paul changed, when his heart was changed, so did his preaching. And he never preached a sermon without Jesus in it, without making sure that Jesus was explained and offered. So now when you look at this, knowing how much he's changed, I mean, you can't help it. Because look, he says, Paul, a servant. You know, the old Paul or the Saul I mean, I think he was so, so self-confident in himself that he would, he would have thought that he would be served instead of serve. So uh, right away, that first, that first word, it shows that he's changed. He, he loves Jesus so much that now he wants to serve him. And then another word that jumps out is called, called to be an apostle. You know, he was called, and I went and found this in Galatians. A couple times in the book of Galatians, Paul says things like, do you think I would pick this job on my own? Do you think that I would have chosen this? Oh, yeah, it's fun being beat up. Oh, yeah, it's fun being left for dead. Oh, these prisons are just really a blast to be in. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm being sarcastic, but he's saying, in all reality, this is not a job that you would pick because of its, um, oh, I'm just making Mugo dollars. <laughs> you know, he's saying, I was called. I think that is so crucial. I believe that, that ministers, preachers today, that they, they should come to a place because they're called. And, and it's only when you follow God's calling will you know the success and the fulfillment and be in that right place that the Lord and his wisdom can feed you. He was called to be an apostle and set apart set apart for the gospel. You know, a lot of us, in, in, in all honesty, we don't like to be set apart because that makes us look a little odd. I mean, maybe we don't quite fit in then. What is the natural human reaction in a crowd of people? I want to be included. I want to be one of you. I don't want to. But no, we're called to be set apart we, our behavior, our attitudes, our purpose, our worth is all set up on different standards than the world's. 
So we should be set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who has well, I'm going to stop there because Paul, he, he knew that Old Testament. He knew it backwards and forwards. That, that old Saul, he, he knew all the details of the scriptures, but he never put two and two together to see that Jesus was the one promised until his spiritual eyes were opened. Now he's saying, oh, now I go back to that Old Testament and I read the prophets and I, I know that's who they were talking about. See the clarity? Look how that all, all of a sudden he sees that this Jesus, who made a personal appearance to him on that road to Damascus, is exactly the one that the apostles or that the prophets foretold. See, now he gets it. But see, that's what happens when the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. Pieces fit. You start making sense out of why this was said the way it was said. And now he gets it. And then he says, and who through the Spirit regarding his son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness, which is the Holy Spirit, was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Boy, he's good at this. He, that is your description of, of Jesus being the son of man and the Son of God, both. And it all had to do with, to me, if you want a simple form, he's the Son of Man because he had a human form on. Because she, he, was, he was born of a woman, a woman as sweet as she was, as compliant to God's will as she was. She was still, like David said, conceived in sin. So how in the world then does, does Jesus' blood be pure when he's born of a woman why is Jesus blood so pure that it is pure enough to be sufficient to wash away our sins because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit so he's son of God because of his his conception because of the Holy Spirit and again, I repeat scientifically, Google, Google this sometime, and just to find that the blood starts in the male. So it just makes sense that being that Jesus um, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, his blood was pure enough to be the blood shed for us, even though he was born of a woman. But I think there again, Paul was so good about sharing. It's because that he was born of a woman, that he's the son of man. He had flesh, but he's pure enough to be the sufficient sacrifice because that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And through him and for his namesake, we receive grace. So it's only through Jesus that we receive grace, which is what? Undeserved favor. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. And to think it's freely bestowed on all who will believe. This grace is offered at the cross of Christ for anyone who will look in the mirror and see their need of a Savior. 
and they're willing to humble themselves and go to that cross. That undeserved favor. We, it's only through Jesus we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So does that mean that we just take this grace and then just sit on it? You just take this grace and this salvation and we just, oh, like I said to you before, we just get fatter and fatter because we just take in more. And we, No, he said, you, by grace, we've received this grace and now this grace takes full circle because now we live out this grace being sent out to show Jesus in our countenance, in our attitude, in our demeanor, in our words, in just playing the way we live our life. So it's because of Jesus we receive this grace, but we are not called to just sit on it. We are then called to take it to a world. Do you think needs it? You know, I was watching the news just like you yesterday, and there was one time, though, that I was just, oh, I just was so excited because there was this young man who, um, he did not get shot, but he watched the whole thing. I mean, it was right there. He was among it all, and he said, I came to this country western concert an agnostic, but I'm leaving a believer. That's what he said. Now, remember, we've been talking about how God will use whatever it takes. And I'm looking at that. I mean, I just wanted to jump through the TV and say, let me get my hands on you, you know, because, boy, do I, I want to tell you, you think that, yes, now you have a realization of God. Now you do see, but that's just the beginning. Let me tell you how much he loves you. Let me tell you, let me give you this, this book, the mouth, his mouth is talking to you and teaching you. You will hear promises that he has for you that you never knew possible. I mean, it was just, oh, please, Lord, let someone get a hold of him. But, you know, like we said in, in the last couple of weeks, it's hard to understand why God does, well, well, look at what Solomon, he sent one adversary after another. I mean, that doesn't sound like fun and games to me. No, God says, I love you too much, and you're not listening to my nice ways of dealing with you. So maybe this will wake you up. So in this one man, when he said, I came in agnostic, but I'm leaving a believer, I just thought, see, God knows what he's doing. So are we, we receive this grace, but not just for ourselves, but it's to be able to share. And we're going to see in Romans 10, we, you know, Paul says this, come on, how do you expect people to know what you know unless they're hearing? And how are they going to hear unless you're willing to tell them? That's right. Satan means it for evil. Yeah. Sound like Joseph today there. But God always means it for good. So we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, faith, faith is such a huge word. It's such a church word. And a lot of times we don't even know what faith really means. So I'm going to try to give it to you in a very, very simple, understandable way. And you're going to see how huge a word. No wonder it's only faith that really pleases God. It's only 
faith that we walk in righteousness, like Romans 1 says, because faith is an absolute trust in him. That means you don't have to know you like, or like it or understand it. He just wants you to take a look at your new day and know that he is in charge and you are his. You've been set apart. You're not your own. You belong to him now because of Jesus. So now you belong to God and he's going to be able to use you. Faith is an absolute trust in him. But you know why the hymn writer wrote, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Because when there is no explanation, when there is no understanding of why, you can just say, I don't get this, but I trust. I mean, I look at Mary this morning. You, you know, Jack, one day he's just, he's just uh, going about his business at Request Foods, and, and all of a sudden then, all of a sudden things start getting a little different and finds you have a brain tumor, and all of a sudden your life changes. You try to make sense out of that. I mean, there's no liking that, and I'm just using you as an example, Mary, but everybody has something. I always say we all come in here with something that God doesn't make sense on. Now, you could go one of two directions. We're learning that about the two trees and about, you know, what we're learning through Proverbs. There's a, it's always a choice. You can either take a look at the situation and say, you know what? Shake your little fist at God and say, you're supposed to make everything right. No, he, didn't, he, didn't, he never promised that. He said, I'll always be there with you, and I'll always make sure that this turns out for good to you because this will make you closer to me. But you got a choice. Are you going to let him have his way? It is sweet to just say, Lord, have your way here. It takes the weight off, the burden off, trying to make sense out of. He just, he, it's sweet to trust. So what is faith? Do you have real faith? I mean, I, I look at you too, Marcia, and I know what you've been in the last years. I mean, you were one wonderful wife. You took care of your husband. Like, what a testimony that was. And, and you're looking at a man 70 years old, 71, 72, before the Lord just took him a couple weeks ago. But, but the thing is, you know, to watch him, you know, lose things at such a young age, and it's hard. And you try to make sense out of that. And if you tried to, all you would do was get frustrated with God. If that's what you think, that God is supposed to just make everything perfect and right in your life. Oh, he makes it perfect. But a lot of times, well, his definition of perfect is not ours. He is working perfection. And you did see that he never left you. And you saw that he gave you strength upon strength these last couple of years. You, you hardly ever missed a Bible study. You knew, Mary, the same thing. You knew what it would take so that you would keep steadfast. You needed to listen to the very mouth and the words of God. Otherwise, you can't. That's what faith is. Faith is being absolutely sure. It's a Fanny Crosby. It's, it's having, having that demonstration of her life. Instead of getting angry at the doctor, she just thanked the Lord for using her. I mean, what a difference in your attitude. But see, it's your call. It's your choice. Am I going to activate my faith, which is an absolute trust in a God who does nothing more than perfection? 
knows what he's doing, knows why we've been set apart, why, why he's, and how he's going to use this. And I look at so many of you, and I think I know so many of the hurt and the pain and the loss that you've gone through, and you cannot make sense out of it. But do you have an absolute trust in the one? Do you have an absolute confident hope in the one who's in charge? That's faith, and that's what we want to grow so that we don't question. We just say, I'm available. So. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own oh, I know. That's next week's lesson. So get ready. That's, that's, that's many people's verses because it is true. And so next week, this is what's so exciting. Next week here in Proverbs 3 and 4. May I just say, because last year I stressed this. And uh, I didn't do that this year. And I, and I wasn't, I just forgot. May I suggest that you read the passage um, once a week is fine. Is that what I said? No. No, no once a week is not fine. <laughs> um, just read it till all your questions are done. Did I say that? No. No, I didn't say that because that's not enough. I, I put the challenge out there, and I've heard from <laughs> many of you that when you commit and if you say, well, I don't have time for that, oh, then you better reevaluate your 24 hours and see what wisdom you're taking in, heavenly wisdom or earthly wisdom, because you're taking in something, and it all depends on how much time you're giving one or the other. So my suggestion is that you read the passage every day, every day. And by the time you come to, by the time we meet on Tuesday morning, you have gone over that passage every day, seven times, and you know it. And it's now a part of you. And the Holy Spirit is able then to help you recall it when you need it. So let that just be a challenge to you, that you, that you read this, that you take apart, that, that this is, you know, one hour church and a two-minute devotional every day, not enough, not enough. And so he, he loves to see that you want to hear from him and the time and the effort and the discipline that you take to hear his words, his teaching, his counsel, his discipline, his rebuke, his correcting. All right, and then it says, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What, what word do you think should have come right out at you in that verse? And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What word should have come right off the page and, and just plowed right into you? Yes, you. Because so often you think, oh, well, he's writing it to the Romans. He's talking to them. No, you means you. And so when he said, and you, you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome. You know, I just kind of, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't mean to change scripture, but, I, but to make it personal, I put to all in Holland. To all, in, to all in Zealand. I mean, put wherever you live, because that is the call to you. Wherever you live. He, your town, your state, your country, your world, 
We are loved by God and called to be saints. Saints is set apart. That's what a saint means. You and I have been set apart. That's true. That's you. That you know. All of a sudden, it, it becomes personal. All of a sudden, yes, it should strike you. So wherever you wanna see and put your name, know that this, he is calling you and I to belong to Jesus, to be called to be saints, set apart for His very own. And when you're willing to do that, look what follows. You talk about is it worth it? Oh, then you experience this grace, this undeserved favor. You are developing this, this confidence and this assurance, and it's a great way to live. Grace and peace. And when you understand grace, then peace follows. Wonderful peace. And the kind of peace that, that is that Paul is talking about is the peace that Jesus said in John 14 when he said, peace I leave with you, peace I give you. Not the kind of peace that the world talks about, but this is the kind of peace that comes when you are so sure that Calvary worked, that you have the confidence of a future, that you know that, that he's coming back to make everything right. And so all this Justice is going to be made right. First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported over all the world. Look, when you have an absolute trust in Jesus, no matter what your circumstance, when you have a real confident hope in Jesus, no matter what your circumstance, people know your circumstance. And yet you're living in that absolute faith and that confidence, that hope. What does Paul say? It shows. It's noticeable. Faith, when you're living out true faith, it is noticeable. Paul says, I have heard people have talked about it all over the world about your, your absolute trust, your, your confident hope. It is noticeable. It's reported all over the world. So just think, when you live this, when, when this now is, is who you are, it is noticeable. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Does Paul love these people? There's no doubt. And as much as he, he likes writing to them and he knows that a letter can teach, he knows that it's beneficial, there's nothing like face-to-face. And you can see the way he says it, why, yes, Jesus is all we need, and yes, you can study God's word on your own, and you're, you have the same Holy Spirit I do, so he can make it clear to you. But there's something about coming together. 
where we can encourage one another, care for one another, sing with each other, pray together, study together. There is something about that. And so Paul is saying, oh, I, 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 I want to come to you. And we know that he does. He gets there, but he gets there um, with a prison guard right by him. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. You know, he's confident in his preaching. He's not confident in himself. He's confident in, in what he knows. He's saying, I want to come to you because even though I know that your faith is being noticed all over the world, um, I just want you to know that just because you've had some spiritual success, I don't want you to ever to think that you can take that for granted because you never know that human pull and that enticing sin and that weakness of your human self and so he says, I just want to come and be able to preach to you more about the Holy Spirit gifts that he gives that will make you stronger and stronger in your faith. Paul is admitting you can't ever say that you got it, that you've got a handle on it without that daily, that daily study and that daily discipline. So he's saying, I want to come to you because I want to, I want, yeah, I want to teach you more. I can remember in Acts where he said, uh, um, we, we wondered, this is where he was beat up so bad. And then he went on to Derby, but then came back to Lystra. And we thought, why would he do that when he knows what they did? And he said, because I got to go back and I got to tell him. I didn't finish telling him that um, everything isn't always going to go your way. You know, there's always, because sometimes you only hear a part of the story, and, and that's why, you know, when we study a letter, we start at the beginning and we go all the way to the end, line by line, because, you know, there's so much in there. And Paul says, I want to come and I want to, there's so much more that I can tell you. And because maybe if you don't realize that every day is not going to go just the way you planned, you might, you might take a dive and think that God uh, didn't care about you. When absolutely it's the opposite. He's trying to stretch you and show himself to you. So he says, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles, I mean, Rome is a big city, and he, he just wants more and more believers there, and you know, uh, he wants a harvest of believers. But the thing that I noticed and the thing that I wrote in my Bible is that what Paul teaches me here is that, yes, he does have longings. He does have plans. He would love to go there. But he has learned from personal experience, like when, when he and Silas were on their second missionary journey, and they were following the map, and they just logically thought that this is the way, this is the direction we're supposed to go. Just follow the map. And then God appears to him and says, nope, I want you to go in this direction, totally opposite of the map. And so Paul and Silas obediently go, and the first city they come to is Philippi. 
And so they go to the place of prayer, thinking that they, that's where they'll meet up with, you know, a lot of their, lot of their um, people. But what do they find there? Just a few low women. I just wonder if Paul thought, huh, that's not what I expected. And then, because they did something right, they were thrown in this god-awful prison. And the only way that they could survive is if they sing hymns and pray and keep their, keep their um, heart open to the Holy Spirit. Because, again, if that, you wonder if humanly they would have thought, man, did I hear the Lord right? This is not, I mean, things are not going well here. But then the earth shook and the prison doors opened. And, and we watched the Philippian jailer come to know Jesus and his family. We see Lydia, who was part of the, that little woman's group there, become essential to Paul's ministry the rest of the time. Do you think that Paul and Silas thought, boy, I didn't look good at the time, but God does know what he's doing. See, that's what I'm learning from Paul. He's, he is just saying, I would like this, but if God has different plans, I've learned that his best is better than mine. He knows how he's going to use this for good. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, that's what we learned from Proverbs last week, wasn't it? That when you take in godly wisdom, you are wise. It's the right way to go. But if you don't, if you think that you are self-sufficient and don't need to listen to him, then you are classified a fool. I don't care how smart you are. That is why I'm so, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. In other words, he knows there's people there who think they're so smart and think that they've got it all together in their own little, in their little tunnel of knowledge or whatever. And he's saying, oh, I want you to become wise in the Lord Jesus. That's why he's eager to preach the gospel. And then he says this. And did you notice in the lesson I even used that word memorize? And I know it's a panic word usually. But this is one verse that when you memorize it, and it keeps coming back to you because it's in your heart and, and the Holy Spirit can help you recall it. Because it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I mean, what is the gospel anyway? It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus that saved me. It's the story that changed the whole course of my forever. It's the story that, that took me from lost to being found. I mean, that gospel story, and I am not ashamed of that gospel. And then I have to think sometime, let's see, who I was with, where I was, what I was doing. I didn't want to be set apart. I wanted to be a part of the group. And so I just kind of kept my mouth shut. I just went along with the crowd, compromised. The... Somehow when we know that that meant you were ashamed. I am not ashamed, Paul said. He, he no matter who he was with, no matter where he was, I am so sure about that gospel story, he says. I don't really care what people think of me. 
I am not ashamed because it is the power of God that changed my life. I mean, that's what makes that verse so personal. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because it is the power of God for salvation for anyone who chooses to believe it. So, yeah, I are you ashamed? Are you, are you, no matter where you go or who you're with? Or... I remember somebody introduced me once and said, um, oh, this is Linnell Pierce. She's very religious. <laughs> That's the way I was. And I, oh, man, it, was, it had nothing to do with religion. It has to do with the gospel story. And I am not ashamed of it. And I pray that you evaluate and you think about that. But, you know, let's face it, to say that I, that I don't, uh, you know, every once in a while, I, I keep my mouth shut. You know, I've told this very many times, but I'll never forget. And I'm glad the Lord keeps it so mindful on my mind. That, that kid in Traverse City, when I know I was supposed to put my hand on his shoulder and say, I know the book you're reading there, and I can see you're searching. Let me tell you about a book that I just... I want to tell you it's the truth. That's all he wanted me to do. Not preach, not sit down by him. No, all he wanted, all the Lord wanted me to do was to put my hand on his shoulder and, and just offer him a suggestion to say, I, I see you're searching by the book you're reading. I know a book that's got every answer that you were searching for. And then I would, I would leave. And the thing is, I didn't. I walked out of that. I walked out of that place, and I didn't do it. And to this day, I am haunted by that. I know I've been forgiven, but yet I, I can't believe how I let the Lord down. And why? Because I, probably, I was ashamed of the gospel. Oh, I blamed it on Tom. <laughs> I remember saying to Tom, oh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't make a spectacle of myself. Aren't you glad? Um, you know, I tried to say that to him. Oh, Aren't you glad that I didn't embarrass you and like I usually do and all this kind of stuff, you know? And I was trying to make light of it until he looked right at me, even while he was driving. He looked right at me, and he said, don't blame me for your disobedience. <laughs> but really what was even more important was that, you know, it's like David said, I've sinned against you, and you only have I sinned. I was ashamed, apparently, of the gospel story. You know, and think of these things. Just take a look at this Romans 1.16 and see if committing it to memory so that, again, it's that wisdom that God will feed you and say, remember, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It changed your life. It changed your forevermore. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So if you, what does righteous mean? It means you're living right. It means you're living the way God intended for you to live. And how do you and I do that? Because we've got, we have got an absolute trust in him. We've got a confident hope in him. And that is what keeps us living right. Now he's going to take a spin and he's going to show you don't want to do that? You don't want to do the first 17 verses? You don't want to take the first 17 verses seriously? You don't want to have your life changed? 
You just really care about living it up in this life because you only get, you know, you get, you, you hear that phrase, well, you only live once. And so you're really putting all your eggs in one basket and boy, you're going to live it up here. And you really don't think that you need them that much or you just might do your hour church or whatever. I know that the wrath of God does not come on his children. The wrath of God does not come on those set apart. But he said the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppressed the truth by their wickedness. Do you think we're seeing that today? I mean it. I, I looked at that all day yesterday, and I thought, I, I believe I'm looking at the wrath of God. And he's trying to get people's attention like this young man's. Because Paul is going to explain why even in, in, in these tough circumstances, it's like with Saul, too. God was going to make sure that Saul... Um, saw his sin. And, you know, he saw to it that David, through Nathan, saw. And, and what happened, David then repented, confessed and repented. And what did God do? He forgave him and, and used him mightily. But did David have to pay consequences? Oh, yes, for the rest of his life he did. Now, with Saul, we saw the opposite. We saw that, that God tried to get Saul's attention. Remember that evil spirit from the Lord? And you would think that whatever this evil spirit that was working in Saul, he would, every day he got up to, to deal with another day, you would think he would see that something's wrong with me. Something is not right. This is not the way I normally act. This is not how, how I behave. See, God does, he wants to get the attention. But Saul, nope, he decided, nope, he just stayed in his misery. See, God is always, through his hard ways of dealing, is trying to say, look at yourself, look at the direction you're heading. Um, how's this working for you? Wake up and see where you're going. This is what God is trying to do here. This is what I think he did yesterday. This is what it looks like when people do not listen to God. When people suppress this, because this, this guy, he's, he was not stupid. And according to what Paul says, there is no man without excuse. There's everybody, all they have to do, what does Paul say? All you have to do is look around. So I'm going to read this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress, who don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen. They think they're smart enough. They don't realize that this is the only book that's truthful. So they suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them. And you say, well, maybe it's not plain to them. You know, it sure is because God created us specifically to need him. 
That's how we, that's what, how we put us together. He purposely saw to it that we would never be content. We would never be satisfied. We would never know true fulfillment. We would never really be, you know, confident or we wouldn't know any of those great words until we knew him. He purposely made us to need him. And so when they suppress that, instead of trying to find the solution to why they are going crazy. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, all you have to do is look around. All you have to do is watch a sunrise. All you have to do is watch a sunset. All you have to do is see how the moon and the sun and the earth all kind of work together and time and seasons and meticulous details. And even in your look in the mirrors, see how right place, right time. Look how God put people. Look at that. That's God working. That's why he said, so that men are without excuse. I underline the word clearly. Maybe they're like this kid. They do, he doesn't understand it all yet, but God made himself known to him. And now he's going to find out all the more about God. But God got his attention. It was clearly seen yesterday or the other night by this kid. It was clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, just like Proverbs 1. And exchange the glory of the immortal. In other words, they could have had all this, but they exchanged it for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. The only thing that the thing that came to my mind was, I don't know if some of you gals get your nails done, but unfortunately, um, many of the people who do women's nails are um, Asian and they come from a different religious background and there's a couple places that I've walked in the door and there sits a, a Buddha and it just breaks my heart because I look at that and I thought, couldn't you have picked anything better than that? I mean, he's just a fat, blubbery old thing. <laughs> and I don't mean to be disrespectful and silly about this because it's serious. In their futile thinking and in their dark hearts, they've created this thing that I was reminded of when Paul went to Athens and he saw that they had gods for everything and they even, even one for the unknown in case they missed one. I remember Paul saying, don't you know that all those gods are worthless? He, he dared. He's not ashamed of the gospel, remember? So he looks at that and he says, do you realize they can't do you a thing? Let me tell you. I'll tell you about that unknown God that's not known to you, but I'm going to make him known to you. It is just... It is just so sad. And the sad thing about it is that these people, 
set food before this Buddha every day. Like that thing's gonna eat it. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. And they're buying into that. They're buying into that. And that's exactly, and why? Because they know something's missing, and instead of going and finding out the real, they, they exchange their, the glory of the immortal God, the one and only creator, amen. The way Paul says it later, they exchange that, and they, they put all of that into something, said immortal, mortal. But I'm telling you, it's not just God's like we read here. It's when, you've, when you have stepped out of God's will and you are lured in to, to the intensity of sin, you, you start realizing that, you know, there's things or people in your life that you've made gods out of. And, and really, God is anything that you think you can't live without. So if you, are, if you are saying something like, oh, I can't possibly live without that, or I can't possibly live without him or her or whatever, you are making a God out of them because Jesus is the only one you can't live without because he's the only one that, what did Paul say? Give you grace and change your heart and send you out to be with worth and purpose. Now look how serious. Therefore... Because people are doing that, because they are making gods out of something or someone of this earth, God gave them over. What does that mean, God gave them over? He just said, okay, you think you're so smart? All right. You want it? You go. Free choice. God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts. Now, here... From verses 24 to the end of the chapter, you're going to see that, that he starts bringing out these sins that human beings have a hard time with. And this is what happens when you don't have, when you've stepped out of God's will and out of that walk with him, because maybe you thought for whatever reason you could handle it, then you will be lured into your weakness. Now, the first few verses are a sexual note, because we know that that is a very, very powerful force. So here, if you have a problem in that, in that realm, then you step out of God's will. You are lured in to your weakness, because what it makes you feel good, it's what you want to do. It's all about you. And then it says that... Um, he gave us over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Love the way Paul said that. You decided to worship and, and idolize something or someone from this world. Let me tell you, there is only one capital C. It's, it's called the creator. And he's the one that is to be forever praised. Amen. In other words, no debate. Last word, there is none other. I love the way he inserted that. Don't, any, don't even think there's anything else. 
Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. So, I mean, because, because sex is such a powerful force in today's world, you can see all God did was hand them over, and they, they just were drawn into sexual immorality. And then even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men who also abandoned natural relations with women were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, we all know what that means, don't we? We all know that homosexuality is something God says no to. And so often, and this is where the danger comes, so often we just take verses 24 to 27 and think that that's a, that's a bigger sin or more prominent sin or a more rebellious sin than... But that's why verse 28 says, furthermore... Furthermore, get off your high horse just because maybe you think and you've, ex you've put homosexuality and it's be become just such a big thing. It's splitting churches and all that kind of stuff. Yes, it's wrong. But you know what? There's a lot of people that, uh, there's that fit in the furthermore that maybe their weakness isn't in a sexual nature, but... Because they, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. And don't think your mind, when it's depraved, doesn't take your body for a ride. To do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, they are gossips. When was the last time you put gossiping on the same level as homosexuality? But you know what? I think this happened to me years ago for this very purpose. A gal came up to me after we studied this passage, and she looked right at me. As God is my witness. She looked right at me and said, don't tell me not to gossip. I enjoy gossiping, and no one's going to tell me what to do. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not telling you God is, so you deal with him on that. But that, that helped me to see that what we're talking about is an enticing sin that caused you to be rebellious because Paul said, you know better, and you just, you just thumb your nose into space, and you say, you know what? I want to do what I want to do. See, every one of us has a weakness. And if we are not careful, sin will just lure us into that weakness. And I would say that in the furthermores, there, you can find yourself. In fact, Paul says, um, if you can't find it in here, we'll, in, we'll invent one because everybody has got one. That's what he says here. They, they invent ways of doing evil. We, without Jesus, without the working of the Holy Spirit, we're lured into our weakness where we don't even want to hear. We want to do it because it makes us feel good, and no one's going to tell me what to do. Now, that's rebellion. Now, 
gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When you're negative, critical, crabby, you know, when you, when you, when you are lured into that, um, that judgmental kind of attitude, everybody, like I said, everybody's got, got something. And when you step out of God's will, and he hands you over to, okay, you think you know, you will be lured to that weakness. And so, again, I'll read, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Do you know pretty soon? You don't even have a conscience anymore. Have you ever wondered about that? Your sin just becomes so part of it. You're so used to doing it. You know, pretty soon it doesn't even seem wrong to you. This lesson is so huge when it comes to making sure that we see how important it is that we work at staying right with God because of our human state, because of the intensity of sin, because of the luring of our weaknesses. But I want to I want to close today with. Now we all know that now it, it comes very clear that all of these sins are equally wrong in the eyes of God. But I I'm going to tell you that I have a, a couple that I know, and their son is is gay. They go to the Christian Reformed Church, and oh, can you imagine? They're just, and you know, it's getting to be so prevalent that, that it's hitting everybody. So everybody, you know, boy, here's a, a wonderful, godly Christian couple whose son decided to step out of the will of God, what, what he decided. And, um, well, I just have to tell you something about that. They, the son, of course, doesn't want anything to do with his parents. And a lot of times it's because the parents have made it so clear that they, don't be, that they know it's wrong that there is, an, there is a separation. There is a, because of this, then we're going we're gonna to shut the door. We're going to show them that we mean business. Um, and this is what I mean about a high horse. Sometimes I think we can look at different sins in people and we forget to see our own. Not that we don't state that it's wrong. Sin is sin. But what did Jesus say to the adulterous woman? No, go and sin no more. But if you choose to deliberately stay in your rebellion, but to close the door, to say, um, and you can call it whatever you want, tough love or whatever, you close the door. You are not, you do not have an opportunity. And what does Paul say? Make the most of opportunities. And if you close doors, you are shutting away opportunities. So I went searching, and I found, I found, how does, how does Jesus, how did Jesus handle sinners? And isn't, don't we say Jesus is our mentor? That we want to look like him and act like him and all this kind of thing. Yeah. So how did Jesus, he, how did Jesus handle sinners? Did he ostracize? Did he show tough love? The only time Jesus got mad was at the religious people. 
The only person he got mad at that church service, it wasn't the, the, that I did in, the, in that little church. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the motorcycle guy with all his chains and black leather and tattoos and, and all his clanging as he came walking into that little church and plunked himself down in the front row and looked at me and said, hello. The Lord made that motorcycle. The Lord whispered in that man's ear. And when he drove by that church, that man felt a need to go into that church. That man didn't understand it all, but he obeyed, whatever. He didn't know that all at the time. He just thought, oh, what's going on here? Stand in the front row. So when I gave the plan of salvation, when I told the story of Jesus, and I said, if there's anybody here tonight, please do not leave until you have come forward. I will pray with you. I will show you how much Jesus loves you. I will share with you how his blood covers your sin. You can start a new life. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I hear the clanging, and here he comes. What a sight that was. I prayed with him. He received Jesus as his Savior. But during this time, there is a crabby religious woman who's sitting in the pews, who's looking at me, who's judging me for what I look like. And, and he, she misses the joy of salvation. She is just in all of her religion. She's sitting there and misses the whole beauty of, this, of, the, of Jesus welcoming, welcoming us in. She's sitting there in her high horse looking at me saying, you're a disgrace to the name of Jesus just because of what I look like or whatever. When she came up to me and made that so clear to me that I was a disgrace to the name of Jesus, I'll tell you, this story comes back to me so often because I'm thinking, this is what Paul's talking about. This man, no matter what he looked like, he came and he knew his heart was empty. And he came forward to accept Jesus as his Savior. But this religion, this religious, that's who Jesus got mad at. He got so upset with those religious leaders who sat there in all their self-righteousness and judgment and crabby looks. This woman wouldn't know the joy of the Lord but smacked her. And yet she was so sure she... I'm telling you, sometimes we get on our high horse. This is how Jesus handles sinners. He, look at this. I found Jesus was never isolated from sinners. Luke chapter 8. Jesus traveled to where sinners lived, Matthew 9. Jesus ate and drank with sinners, Matthew 9. Jesus received hospitality from sinners, Luke 19. Jesus gave hospitality to sinners, Mark 2. Jesus fed them instead of turning them away. Remember, like 5,000 of them? Mark 6. Jesus touched sinners. Remember, remember the leper when society said they were unclean? Matthew 8, Luke 6. Luke 7, Jesus showed compassion to sinners, Matthew 9, John 11. Jesus invited sinners to come to him, Matthew 11. Jesus gave life to sinners, John 10, 10. Jesus forgave sinners even when they persecuted and killed him. That's how Jesus handles sinners. So when we read that, our main concern is that we do not fall into the trap of our weaknesses, that we work at standing, walking right with our God because it is luring. But when someone that we know and love has, has gone off the path and we know that the pull is so intense, may we, like Jesus, 
Yeah, we don't condone. But Jesus always said, come to me. I think Jesus' most favorite words were, come to me. Last night, I got to tell you, this couple came up to me. <laughs> and we sat down and tears rolling down his face. They're going to make some changes this week. See, that touches me. See, this is what Paul is trying to get across to us. Sin is all around us. Sin is luring and grabs us and wants us to, to go in our own direction. And sometimes Jesus says, okay, you think you know better? I'm going to hand you over to it. So we have to work at this. We have to take it seriously. And most of all, then, when he brings loved ones and people in our lives, that let them seek grace. I have never seen this change someone's life. I've never seen somebody with condemnation change someone's life because Jesus said, I didn't even come to condemn. I came to save. So when we show Jesus and live out Jesus and, and show grace, because, boy, while we were yet sinners, guess what? He died for us. And so this same grace he wants working through us, condoning, no, unconditionally loving, that's what changes lives. That's the draw to Jesus. So. Jesus chose never to sin to be our example. He sure did. He is definitely our example. So serious lesson, good lesson. Think about it this week.